Okay, time to kick off again. Second <coughs> this afternoon, Peter Williams, the other side of the coin. Who did Jesus think that he was? I think almost inevitably there's going to be an, an element of overlap uh, between these two talks, but also, I hope, uh, sufficient different material to, uh, to keep it interesting. Um, there's been a number of phases in what's been called the, the quest for the historical Jesus. And we had in that little video that Chris played earlier the, uh, the assumption that there's a difference between the so-called Jesus of faith and the Jesus of history, uh, which is basically a way of, of uh, skewing uh, your academic research before you've actually looked at any of the evidence. Uh, so I'm, I'm leery of that kind of uh, assumption. Um, but it seems that in uh, the so-called third quest for the historical uh, Jesus in the last sort of 25 years or so, um, scholars across the spectrum uh, of belief have become uh, less sceptical on the whole uh, about the historical uh, worth of uh, the Gospels and the New Testament and so on. I just put up a few uh, important books there, such as uh, Richard Burridge's What are the Gospels? Looking at the biographical nature of the Gospels, or um, Richard Borkham's Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, or um, Paul Barnett's Finding the Historical Christ and so on. Dal Bock mentions that those who participate in the third quest have tended to see far more historicity in the Gospels than either of the, the previous quests. Uh, David Glass similarly mentions scholarship in the historical Jesus becoming much less sceptical in recent decades. And I think on the back of the, the third quest of the historical Jesus, it does um, make more sense to uh, take the gospel seriously and to mount that kind of uh, dilemma of the person of Jesus giving his claims and his deeds that Chris was talking about. In my book, Understanding Jesus, I come to the uh, assessment that Jesus saw himself as more than a prophet called to teach or even to embody a spirituality of love for God and self and neighbour, that he understood that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, as coming in and through his own ministry in person. Uh, he saw himself as the divine son of man figure who combined the roles of messianic king from the Old Testament and that of suffering servant from places like Isaiah, uh, who was himself the divinely appointed divine entry point into the spirituality of the kingdom. So he was preaching about the, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, but saying, you know, I am the door, I am the gate into that kingdom. As uh, William Lane Craig puts it, most New Testament critics acknowledge that historical Jesus acted and spoke with the self-consciousness of divine authority and furthermore, that he saw in his own person the coming of the long-awaited kingdom of God and invited people into its fellowship through faith in him. Um, Lewis wasn't the first person to, to use the lunatic liar lord kind of argument. He indeed read it in Chesterton. And uh, this is a quote from a Scottish professor called John Duncan uh, from uh, 1796 to 1870, who said, uh, Christ either deceived mankind by conscious fraud, or he was himself deluded and self-deceived, or he was divine. There's no getting out of this trilemma. Uh, three options, trilemma. And hence you get a little, nice little diagram of the options there like this. I've probably mentioned before Richard Dawkins' attempt to plug in a fourth uh, possibility down the, his claims was false, uh, and he believed it, but he wasn't a lunatic. He was just, just honestly mistaken. 
Um, you know, if people are honestly mistaken about things all, all the time, as I sometimes say, you know, I sometimes think I've left my keys in my coat pocket, but actually they're on the desk. You know, is it parallel to that to say that first century Jews of that time could go around making claims that implied that they're in the shoes of God, um, but they're just honestly mistaken and not dissociated from reality in a large way? Um, with Stephen Davis, I don't think it's easy to see how any sane religious first century Jew could sincerely but mistakenly hold that kind of belief. Nicky Gumbel's humour about uh, Dawkins thinking that Christians are deluded because they believe there is a God, but Jesus not being deluded despite thinking he was God, I think kind of hits the nail on the, on the head. Um, so with Mike King, I think that anyone honestly mistaken in such a way would inevitably be considered insane in that cultural context. Um, and I think this is a sort of backhanded compliment to the strength of that kind of lunatic liar-lord argument because, well, why shouldn't Dawkins and Kay simply dismiss Jesus as either being mad or say, I think he was bad? Why not do that? Um, as King says, clearly it's because a rudimentary flick through Jesus' life demonstrates both of these possibilities to be untenable. It's why it's, it's, it doesn't strike us out of place that people write books with titles like The Psychology of Jesus and Mental Health. Or um, Richard Burridge's recent Imitating Jesus, a book on New Testament ethics. Um, well, why don't Dawkins and Al go for those other options? Well, it's clearly because they see them as implausible. Dawkins says there is no evidence Jesus himself was barking mad. Um, he also doesn't think Jesus was a deceiving liar. He says he was uh, a great moral teacher and so on, who he respects the moral teachings of Jesus, just wanted to, to ditch the metaphysical baggage that Jesus put alongside it. Of course, as Mark Mittelberg mentions, today the common claim would be, in many quarters, that belief in Jesus as a unique divine person arose long after he walked the earth. This is a late theological development rather than part of the ground zero data. Um, he says such books as the Da Vinci Code have popularised the notion that it wasn't until the Council of Nicaea three centuries after Jesus' time that Christians started worshipping him as the divine son of God. Although the best historical scholarship shows that this simply is not the case. And there's the, uh, the passage from the Da Vinci Code in which Professor Deeping uh, mentions Jesus' establishment of the Son of God being proposed and voted on by the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, which is a load of historical bunkum. Um, but anyway, <laughs> just from going to the historical record, because I love showing these pictures, um, 2005 they dug up whilst uh, wanting to put a new wing in Megiddo prison, and they were, they were digging up the floor, and they came across this mosaic floor of a very early Christian church, uh, that's been dated to around 230 AD, so 100 years before the Council of Nicaea. Uh, and part of the inscriptions on this floor, if we have a close-up of the inscription here, next to the plinth, the communion table in the middle of the hall, uh, it's a Greek inscription from uh, the God-loving Akeptus, who has offered the table to God, Jesus Christ, as a memorial. So there certainly were people, at least 100 years before the Council of Nicaea, who thought of Jesus as God, or the Palatine Hill uh, Aximenos Graffito from AD 200, um, Alaximenos worships his God, uh, taking a fun at uh, one soldier looking up at the donkey-headed figure on a cross here, 
what an ass he has made of himself worshipping this crucified criminal. Does that remind you of anyone? Um, so just go to the archaeological record to debunk Dan Brown. Well, as Dino Overman puts it in his excellent book, A Case for the Divinity of Jesus, that the devotional practices of the primitive church, for which there's substantial evidence, clearly demonstrates that Jesus was worshipped as divine right from the beginning of the Christian movement. But this, look at what did, what did at least some people think of Jesus back then, raises the historical question of why did they think of him like that? Particularly since the earliest church, the followers of Jesus, came from a Jewish, monotheist Jewish background and were uh, antithetical to the, the pagan polytheistic kind of background uh, in the Roman world around them. As the agnostic philosopher Antonio O'Hare puts it, Jesus' first followers were pious Jews to whom the claims being made, whether by him or on his behalf, those claims being made would have seemed blasphemous had they not been given strong reason to believe them. And we're better to get those reasons for believing them and to get that view than from Jesus himself. That seems the most uh, plausible historical account of the origin of those beliefs, that Jesus did things that invited people to believe in him in that manner. So let's have a a quick uh, look by uh, killing two birds with one stone, looking at the miracles of Jesus and what they say and reveal about Jesus' self-consciousness. A category of Jesus' actions that express his self-understanding but also provide independent uh, validation thereof, thereby sharpening and complementing the dilemma of Jesus' claims in the context of his character. Think about Jesus and John the Baptist. Q, and we we looked at the source hypotheses last week, Q uh, reports that John the Baptist is languishing in, in Herod's jail. He's suffering from embarrassing doubts about whether Jesus is the Messiah and so on. He sends messengers asking, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus replies to him, go back and report uh, to John all you've, uh, what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and so on. Well, this response from Jesus echoes the messianic prophecies of Isaiah. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, the ears of the deaf be unstopped. Jesus was arguing in the following form, in other words. Promise one, if somebody does X miracles, as specified in the Old Testament, then they're the Messiah. Premise two, I'm doing X miracles. You've seen it yourself. Conclusion, therefore, yes, John, I am the Messiah. But there's also an implication of Jesus' claim to Messiahship, because John had proclaimed Jesus as Messiah, and Jesus identified John as the messenger of Malachi 3.1. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Matthew 3.3 and Luke 3.4.6 apply Isaiah 43 to John. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So the entailment of Jesus' reply to, to John's embarrassing doubts seemed to be premise one carried forward from before. 
Jesus is the Messiah. Premise two, the Messiah is God. Three, therefore Jesus is God. Now the Jesus seminar, John Dominic Crossan, uh, talking about miracles, makes the interesting point that that most people might assume that miracles come into the Jesus tradition later, like the idea that the idea he's divine comes in later into the tradition, as a creative confirmation rather than as original data. But he says such an assumption would be completely wrong. He points out that the better explanation is just the reverse. Miracles were, at a very early stage, being washed out of the tradition, and when they're retained, were being very carefully interpreted. And he points out things like Matthew excluding or shortening Mark's miracle stories that he takes over into his Gospels. This is uh, something of a carefully worded scholarly consensus in this area. So you can quote again from the Jesus, Liberal Jesus Seminar member Marcus Borg saying that on historical grounds it's virtually indisputable that Jesus was a healer, an exorcist. Or the Jewish scholar Jochem Jeremias saying that when strict critical standards have been applied to the miracle stories of demonstrably historical nucleus remains. Part of the reason for this consensus is the existence of enemy attestation, um, both within and outside of the Bible. So, um, Alan Richardson points out that even his enemies believed that he worked miracles. Mark and Q include the accusation of Jesus' opponents that he was able to exercise demons because he was in league with the devil. Not only is this doubly attested, but it's an unlikely fabrication because it's embarrassing. Um, as N.T. Wright puts it, the church did not invent the embarrassing charge that Jesus was in league with Beelzebub. But charges like that aren't advanced unless they're needed as an explanation for some remarkable phenomena. Or enemy attestation sourced from outside of the gospel in the, in the Babylonian Talmud of the Jewish oral tradition. You have the, the charge uh, that Jesus practiced sorcery. Uh, the pagan philosopher Celsus wrote in 180 uh, AD about that uh, he thought it was by magic that Jesus was able to do the miracles which he appears to have done. Or Josephus, writing in about 94 AD in the Antiquities, uh, talks about Jesus being a doer of startling deeds, or paradoxa deeds, which is the same word he uses when talking about Old Testament uh, miracles. So here's an interesting chart. I like writing my charts, as you'll know from some of my talks. Here's a chart of all of the miracle stories of Jesus that are recorded in more than one gospel. And indeed, um, I've broken them into categories, so nature miracles, healings, exorcisms, revivication of people from the dead. And you can see that every category of miracle performed by Jesus is attested by multiple early independent sources. And that even specific miracles are attested in that way. And that that testimony includes eyewitness reports such as John, Matthew, and Q. It follows close on the reported events by comparison with most other works of ancient history. So let's just uh, look at a few key examples. Um, the feeding of the 5,000, which is reported in all four Gospels. But think of that miracle in terms of the Old Testament background. Uh, so Exodus 16.4, then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. Or 2 Kings 4, um, where Elisha, a man comes bringing uh, Elisha 20 loaves of barley bread. 
Give it to the people to eat, Elisha said. How can I set this before a hundred men, his servant asked. But Elisha answered, give it to the people to eat, for this is what the Lord says. They'll eat and have some left over. Then he set it before them, and they ate and had some left over. But Jesus' act of feeding the 5,000 and having quite a lot left over, uh, on the basis of a couple of loaves and a couple of fishes, is evidenced by early multiple and independent sources, including eyewitnesses. Or his healing of the paralysed man, mentioned in all three synoptic gospels. Here we have perhaps the earliest portrait of Jesus. This is Jesus here. He's standing over a man lying on a bed. And here's a picture of a man carrying his bed. It's a sort of early time-lapse picture, if you like. And this is from a house church in modern-day Syria, uh, and dated to about 232 AD. This is, of course, a picture of Jesus' healing of the paralytic story from, for example, uh, Mark 2, where I quote it from here. A story, the whole point of which is, son, your sins are forgiven, or literally in the text, have been and are being forgiven on Jesus' own authority. Some of the teachers of the law sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who could forgive sins but God alone? And then Jesus heals the man in context with calling himself the son of man. And we'll come back to the the son of man label. Or Jesus calming the storm. Again mentioned in all three synoptic gospels. And this is the famous Galilee boat. First century boat. Um, Think of Psalm 107. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. But Jesus' calming of the storm is attested by the criteria of embarrassment, because the the disciples don't do themselves any favours by their lack of trust in Jesus. He berates them because they're scared and not trusting him in the situation. It's attested by multiple early sources, including some eyewitness sources. Or Jesus walking on water from Mark, Matthew, and the independent gospel of John. Job 9.8. He, referring to God, he alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. And here again from the same house church baptistry in Syria. Picture of Jesus and Peter walking out on the water from the boat evidenced by early multiple independent sources, including eyewitnesses. So these miracles of Jesus, evidenced by multiple standard criteria of historical authenticity, are best understood as enacted claims to prophethood, messiahship, and indeed divinity, uh, that simultaneously put the divine stamp upon Jesus' teaching, including his teaching, of course, about himself. So there's a kind of double warrant going on there. I also couldn't resist, because this is another picture from just above the baptistry, the baptistry pool in that house church, is a picture of Jesus carrying a sheep on his shoulders. Of course, this is reminding us of uh, Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Um, Psalm 23, talking of God in the first person. Uh, The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. God is my shepherd. Jesus, I am the good shepherd. 
And here they have just above the baptistry there the picture of Jesus as the, the good shepherd. So i come back briefly to the, the Son of Man. At Jesus' trial, life on the line, if you want to start any sort of theological fantasy footwork to save your neck, this is the time to do it. Uh, again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, says Jesus, burning bush. I am, says Jesus. And this is in Mark, not John. I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tears his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him. Unanimous decision, guilty. And they crucify him. Because it's obvious to them that Jesus is quoting from Daniel 7. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Traditional Jewish apocalyptic imagery of the glory of God, the cloud. And he approached the ancient of days, God the Father, and was led into his presence. He can go into the presence of God. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. Given God's sovereign power, God's king, but this guy's got sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. The Old Testament is very hot on the fact you can only worship God. Don't even worship an angel. That would be blasphemous. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed whose kingdom could that possibly be so it was clear to the court that Jesus had put his neck in the noose deliberately so because he was only asked are you claiming to be the Messiah the son of the son of God and it's actually the son of man title is actually more denoting of divinity given the Old Testament background than the son of God title is so asked are you the messiah the son of god jesus uses the name of god it says that's right uh, and i'm going to come with god's glory on god's judgment seat of the judgment day and you think you're judging me but i'm going to be judging you and i should be worshipped and i have a kingdom that will never end what do you think about that crucify him <laughs> so if he was a liar, he wasn't a very clever one. I agree with Professor Carson Peter Thied when he concludes in his book, Jesus, Man or Myth. There is no room for doubt. Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, the Son of God, and God himself. And on that basis, I think that kind of lunatic liar-lord argument has a considerable force, which considered alongside the evidence of Jesus fulfilling Old Testament prophecies that I also look at in my book, Understanding Jesus, of the miracles, not only sharpening that dilemma, but also witnessing, as Jesus appeals, believe because of the evidence of my miracles, because of the evidence of religious experience and changed lives, and because of the evidence of the resurrection, taken cumulatively, I think there's a very powerful case at least if you don't approach that case with the presupposition that there is no God and there can't be miracles, um, that Jesus was who he thought he was.
Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Some time for some questions. Anybody else want to kick off first before you get? Anybody else want to flow? <laughs> Come on. Otherwise, he does get first dibs. <laughs> yeah. Maybe you can clear something up. Please tell me if I'm wrong. My understanding is when Jesus is on the cross uh, and he realises he's done for life, doesn't he say, Oh, if God has forsaken me? Did he, uh, right. How do we explain that? Is that yeah. Him living life as a normal man, or if, mm. if, he's, if he's gone, then does he know? He knows all along he's going to die and then yeah, come yeah. so why on the cross yeah. and I think it's clear from the rest of, of, of even you know the, the, those gospels that it's clear that Jesus deliberately sets to do this and knows that he's going to suffer and so on so what many people have pointed out is that that my God my God why hast thou forsaken me is a quotation from one of the Old Testament Psalms and uh, can anyone remember which particular Psalm it is Psalm 22 which if you read Psalm 22 is a very um, kind of spookily descriptive of what happens at the crucifixion, although written hundreds of years before. And it's a psalm that begins with that cry of desolation, but ends with a, it is, it is completed, um, which almost you know, parallels Jesus' it is finished from the cross as well. So he's saying it because he thinks if he's fulfilling the prophecy, he should say it. Yeah, I think it, I think it comes to mind because it's so descriptive from the Old Testament background, and also there's, there's, a, there's a, a typical Jewish practice of, of mentioning the beginning of a verse, of a, of a section of scripture, to talk about the whole thing. Like the section where such and such happens. That's the, oh yeah, that, that passage, or that book, or that psalm. Um, so a lot of people have, 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 have said perhaps he was reciting the psalm to himself, sort of saying, yeah, I am going through this suffering, but I will be vindicated. Um, when, you, when you read Psalm 22 and compare it to the two, and I think you'll, you'll see how those match up. Yeah. It's also that the, Jesus, as well as being fully God, is equally fully man. Yeah. Um, and and that, that human yeah. side, I mean, yeah. somebody strung up on a cross yeah. is going to say, well, yeah. where are you? Yeah. That's right. From a human perspective. He might, he might, because you might well feel abandoned by God whilst knowing that you're not. As well, feeling and knowing are, are, are two different things. So it's possible for for Christ to, to do both. Yeah. Um, I personally believe in substitutionary atonement, which is not like when Jesus was on the cross, God wasn't seeing Jesus as His Son, but seeing Jesus as like me or any other sinner. So I think at that moment, because Jesus was um, punished and received the wrath of God for. Because God um, is perfect and can't stand sin. I think at that moment Jesus became sin. He that knew no sin became sin on the cross. So in that sense, while on the cross, I believe he was abandoned so that I can never be abandoned by God. Now God sees me as perfect. I've received his righteousness. So in a sense, I don't think it's sin. I don't think it's Jesus doubting God. Jesus, well, the whole Trinity were in perfect union and fellowship with each other for all eternity. Jesus was the one being that never ever deserved to be abandoned from God, but he was. I don't think he was, and that's why he said that. I don't think he was doubting what he said. I think he just knew that. He wasn't going to be in fellowship with God on the cross. Thank you for that. Lee. Yeah. Um, some of the miracles, like miracles of nature, are mm. hard to interpret in any other way. 
But I struggle a bit with the exorcism side of things. Mm. You know, the interpretation of people being possessed compared with perhaps our understanding of mental illness. And I wonder mm. if you want to say anything about that. <clears throat> what can I say usefully in so brief a measure? Um, I wrote a book on angels and demons some years ago called The Case for Angels, which I re- refer you to. Um, certainly, um, within the New Testament, a, a distinction is drawn, uh, I think particularly in Luke, between uh, people who uh, have illnesses and those who have demonic possession. It's not just that they thought if you were ill, you were demon-possessed kind of thing. There is a distinction drawn. So Jesus is obviously doing some kind of diagnosis process of, is this a case of I heal a sickness, or is this a case of I need to, to throw, out, throw out a demon? It wasn't just an automatic assumption that sickness equaled, equaled demon. But the sickness would be physical that he was healing, not mental. Uh, well, there's an overlap. There's an overlap because they also believe that demonic possession could result in uh, certain physical ailments. Mm-hmm. And, and, I mean, it's going to depend upon what you think about the, the whole possibility of demon possession. But once, once you've got that, the whole, the whole psychosomatic nature of sickness and health anyway, uh, I think makes it not at all implausible that those categories can overlap. Um, and um, psychologists like um, M. Scott Peck, for example, who've I- investigated that phenomenon, um, are, are wary of the kind of either-or thinking that asks, is someone demon-possessed, or are they sick, or are they mentally ill? And often says, actually, sometimes keep me... <laughs> those can overlap, um, and they can be there can be an interreaction and relationship between them, although, of course, they can be separate as well. Um, So I think if we don't keep the the categories in kind of airtight categories and um, from a Christian worldview basis of there being a God who's an infinite unembodied person and there being embodied persons who have a spiritual nature... It's not at all surprising that there could be finite, unembodied persons, and perhaps they have free will, and perhaps some of them have misused their free will, and you know that that the setup goes from there, and it becomes a matter of um, sufficient testimony to thinking that that possibility is actually realised in particular cases. Um, But as with a lot of the miracles. Or that they're, you know, they're, they're one-off mentions. There's, if you were approaching it from a purely historical standpoint, on a lot of miracles or exorcism occasions, you might well say, there's just not enough data there for me to say that data on its own convinces me. It's rather that I'm, I'm, I'm convinced because I believe the Bible is the word of God and it's saying this. But if I put that theological belief to one side, you know, one reference in one source... Isn't, isn't going to hack it, even if you do believe in demonic possession. You might think, well, that's, that's not enough evidence. Um, but that's why I, I concentrated on, on incidents that have you know, multiple attestation that pass other criteria of standard historical reliability and so on. And I think there are, there are enough occasions where what Jesus is doing miraculously passes those criteria to at least make you suspicious that there's no smoke without fire kind of thing, and that there's, you can you can enter that into a case for Jesus that doesn't assume biblical reliability and inspiration. Um, but there's, I, I would agree there's a lot of occasions, particular incidents and so on, that I, that I believe because of that whole theological framework rather than because of the direct uh, 
evidence for it. Yeah. That was a good long answer, which has taken us over oh. time. This is the traditional five minutes past. Look at that. <laughs> so I'm going to formally bring it to a close there. Um, but if you want to get back at Peter, because he hasn't... Yeah, I'm still here. ...more to go, you're not rushing away, are you? Okay, no, okay, no. Okay, so, so let's thank both our speakers, Sam and Chris. And